The Worker Learner Podcast is brought to you by the Professional Learning Hub, Griffith University's platform for executive and professional education. Bringing together the expertise of Griffith University's academics and research centres, our professional learning is designed to deliver creative solutions for the workplace of tomorrow. Whether you are looking for opportunities for yourself or your team, we have you covered. Hi, I'm Dr. Johanna Nello and I'll be your host for this episode. I'm a climate adaptation scientist, which means I'm interested in how we deal with change and what do we do when we get stuck. My guest today is a leader in the sustainable tourism industry, Steve Knox. Anyone who lives in Southeast Queensland has probably heard Steve's name. When the bushfires got at the historical buildings of the much-loved Binabara in 2019, it was Steve Noakes who became the face of the multifaceted recovery process. Steve's history in Binabara goes back over 50 years when he first visited the site as a schoolboy on an excursion. Since that first experience, he has run tours to Binabara and has sat on the board. And he has extensive 45-year background in sustainable tourist industry also in the Asia-Pacific region and maintains interest across industry, academy and NGOs throughout the region. I'm very fortunate to have known Steve for years and I've been particularly impressed with his passion, especially during the recovery process, reimagining Binabara's future in a changing climate and putting in place strategies that are making the beloved destination available for new and old visitors. Today, I'm really interested in what has he learned about business resilience and how do we prepare, respond and adapt to disasters. Steve, welcome. Hi, Joe. Thanks for having me. So, Steve, let's get the uh, straight to the dramatic bit. Uh, could you take us back to the when you heard uh, and saw Binabara burning and what was that moment like for you? Well, back in uh, about mid-year, August it was, 2019, in our neighbourhood we had um, awareness that there were, after a couple of years of very dry drought conditions, that we were heading into a very high bushfire danger period and our National Parks Authority, with in conjunction with our local community, had started some hazard reduction burns on the eastern side of the access road into the park, National Park. And the wind came up unexpectedly and, and more of that land was burnt than originally intended. As it turned out, four weeks later, when, when the major fire came through the other side, that, that was a good thing because that side had already burnt yeah. and, and my house was in the middle, actually. So that was uh, fortuitous in my case. And sadly, it wasn't for 11 of my neighbours who lost their houses. But um, I had uh, to go overseas after that and I was watching the, this new fire come down the valley from about 10 k's away on the western side and on the Friday before the fire hit on the Sunday, um, watching the movement of the fire online, I got a message from our management at the lodge that they were going to do a voluntary evacuation of all people and locked lock the facility down. Um, and that was about midday my time. I was in Jakarta. And so I managed to get a seat on the 8 o'clock Qantas flight to Sydney that night and get back to the Gold Coast on the Saturday morning. Um, but we had done, the team had done a full evacuation of all guests and staff. We were about 100% booked. And also with the cars in the car park, they tracked 
who was not necessarily a customer of ours, but was out walking on the tracks in the national park and and identified everybody. Um, the very last couple were um, had two young children, and when they managed to get them off the track, they just basically put them in their car and they drove straight out and left all their camping gear still in the campground. Um, the because of the wind uh, and destabilizing trees, the single access road became impassable on the Friday night. And as a result of that, when the fire finally hit on the Sunday morning, there was no access on the road for firefighting equipment. So the only way that the fire, the wildfire that was coming up the valley um, could be attacked was by aerial bombing, water bombing. There was no land-based yep. facilities. So it was all fairly um, high tension um, that weekend. Those of us who live locally all had to evacuate our houses. I was sleeping down at the local fire shed for a few nights um, and our volunteer firefighters were doing a fantastic job. But they were also traumatised to some extent because they were trying to save houses and property and they lost some and they were exhausted. And it was a very major logistical movement mm. with, um, what happens in that situation, you know, at three o'clock in the morning when you've got ambulances and paramedics and police and rangers and volunteers. We had about 60 or 70 vehicles coming in and out of the fire shed. So it's it's a little bit like a war scene. Um, mm. And nobody's had sleep for a, you know, a couple of days. So, yeah. Um, it's a fairly stressful situation. Yeah. But about five o'clock, oh, about three o'clock on the Sunday morning, I, I just had to lie down in the back of a truck and had a couple of hours sleep. And at that stage, the fireys were telling me it wasn't looking very good for the lodge. And then at 5 a.m., a couple of hours sleep, and then they told me the lodge had gone. And then and then the politicians and the media frenzy started a couple of hours later. Mm. And could you, just for people who are not familiar with Binabara, what, what makes Binabara special and how, what is that history like? Well, Binabara's sort of linkages go back to uh, the origins of the establishment of national parks in Queensland, in fact, the concept of national parks in Australia. So the people who sort of laid the foundations were associated with the Royal Geographical Society of Queensland that was formed in 1888. And then um, and they, some of those leaders pioneered had gone to the US and seen this concept of national parks and came back to Queensland and helped develop the legislation to introduce national parks into Queensland in the early 1990s. And one, there were many people involved, but one in particular, a gentleman called Romeo Lay, um, took over the baton to get um, a big area of land on the Queensland New South Wales border to be declared a national park in 1915. And, and and he went off and served in the First World War. But when he returned in 1920, he talked to a landowner who had the land adjacent to the new national park, which is a land we now call Binnaburra, to see if he could purchase it to build a little guest house. But the landowner, George Rankin, didn't want to sell. And then 10 years later, a, a young fellow came along called Arthur Groom, and he and Romeo got on pretty well. And Arthur had the same idea. But in 1930, the two of those, those two guys formed the National Parks Association of Queensland, which is Australia's oldest conservation organisation, still exists today. 
Um, and I maintain that relationship between Binnaburra um, as the vice president of the National Parks Association of Queensland. Um, and three years later, they got just over 90 members of the National Parks Association of Queensland um, were the original shareholders and, and formed the company that is Binnaburra Lodge and bought the land off George Rankin, who stayed on the board for about 20 years. So what happened was during the 1930s, 40s, 50s and 60s, about 70% of what are now Queensland's national parks were, were founded or lobbied for by the National Parks Association of Queensland. So you've had this very long history mm. of Binnaburra being a, a contributor and player to preserving um, biodiversity through national parks, both marine and terrestrial national parks. So because of that, and a lot of educational activities um, over the generations, three or four generations, there are enormous number of people, and particularly those of influence in government and science and education and community groups, who remember their experience as a kid at Binnaburra. And, mm. and so when the bushfire devastated the historic old buildings, there was a very strong emotional reaction amongst thousands of people not just in Queensland or Southeast Queensland, but nationally and internationally. And so that that strong emotional reaction to a place that so many people had seen over the last 90-odd years was something to be recognised and, and also to be managed and to be harnessed as part of the recovery process. Hmm. And, and I know that the... Like you said, basically after the lodge had burned down, the media frenzy frenzy started. But also the the discussion of rebuilding. What would what would that look like? So, like, what were the immediate reactions like with people who obviously were devastated, um, you know, of the loss? Mm. But when you were, you know, looking at the devastation and but also starting to plan plan for the future. One of the consistent questions from the media, and, and because we're we're a high profile. Uh, nature-based tourism destination mm. in the Australian context and internationally. Um, that first three or four days was <clears throat> very intense media. And I made the decision that we would address, take the advantage of communicating to our customers and our creditors and our communities through the public media because we'd lost everything. We'd lost computers and lawyer records and and, you know, yeah. we had to retrench about 60 staff because we had no money coming in <laughs> to pay anybody. Um, and this is all going on at the same time. So online and offline public media was a very important part of the communication strategy. Um, one of the consistent questions was, are you going to rebuild? And, you know, it's like, oh, hang on, the place has just burned down. we got no money. And, you know, to rebuild something like that, we need about $20 million. And, and, got, and then the... the the insurance was quite low because in that environment, it's very hard to get, well, it's impossible now to get bushfire coverage for, and so we had very small amount of insurance for bushfire. We were fully insured for anything else except mm. bushfire, but bushfire is low. So we, there was no money to rebuild. Um, but I, <clears throat> I wanted to send a positive message immediately. And even though I had no idea how we we're going to do it, where the money was coming from, I said, yes, we will rebuild. And, and, and that was instinctive, and part of the reason was uh, 1984. How long ago was that? That's a long time ago, 35 odd years, whatever it was, 35 odd years ago. 
I happened to be on a place called Hamilton Island in the Whit Sundays when it burnt down, or the Central Lodge burnt down, and the then owner and founder was a guy, um, Keith Williams. And I, was, <clears throat> I remember Keith fronting the, the TV cameras, and he said, we start building tomorrow. Now, what happens when a place burns down like that? You know, you've got emergency services, the police take control to check if there's any arson issues, then the insurance company takes control. So you as the owner don't have much control mm. until those processes take place. But he just stood there and said, we start building tomorrow. And I thought, I'll do what Keith did 35 years ago. Uh, it was a good idea because it sent a message out mm. about being positive um, and consistent. So... I had that experience from 35 years ago, which was stuck in the back of my mind somewhere. Um, and so I clocked in on that. Mm. And, uh, you know, it took us two and a half years to work through various options. And then we were very fortunate this year in June in the state budget on the floor of the House of Parliament in Queensland that our treasurer in the budget announced uh, an $18 million grant to Benabarra to rebuild the lodge, which is just fantastic. No, but yeah, and in terms of because I know that, like you mentioned, a lot of um, people they feel really connected to to Binabara. So, how important has has that community been in the rebuilding um, process as well? Oh, look, it's very important, um, and it's very important we acknowledge it and manage it and pay respect to it and harness it. <clears throat> so, mm. as an example. Binnabarra is like Australia's biggest ecotourism collective, right? So it's a whole bunch. Now we've got about 1,400 basically small shareholders who feel part of it. Yeah. The visionaries who founded the company back in the 1930s said nobody can ever own more than 2.5% of the shares in the company. And before the bushfire, nobody owned more than 1%. Mm. But even now, 90 years later, you know, more than half, well, about a third of the shareholders have got 500 or less dollars invested in $1 shares and about a half have got a 1,000 or less, about over 90% or less than 5,000. So it's it's a <clears throat> it's a big collection of, of very small shareholders. And we, we went back and opened up the shares to the market for 12 months, which finished last year or this and earlier on this year. And we had over 500 new people involved, which is just great that they feel part of it. So our, mm. our responsibility as owners, and I represent the owners, the shareholders, is to be stewards of the Binnaburra cultural landscape for our generation, and then we'll hand it on to another. Um, and we needed that cash. We raised just over $1.2 million from that just to, to do stuff and keep the business solid, yeah. which is great. And now that we're going through a process of a new design for the new lodge with state government funding support, that only builds the infrastructure. The budget doesn't include the furniture fittings, FF&E part of it all. Um, and that's going to cost us a half a million to a million. So the more we can engage our shareholders, those new those 1,400 in feeling part of the design process, and that we've, we've had many, many consultations on that, um, the more opportunity we're going to have to go back to them later on this year with another share offer to see if we can help raise the money required for the FF&E and the new lodge. So there's 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 emotional connection and management, but there's also a, a commercial logic in you know maintaining the communications, making people feel involved and passionate, and contributing the funds when we need funds from the shareholders. 
Mm. And I think, I mean, it's interesting, Binabara, because it's not just, you know, it's not just a company, like you said, you have the community, you have the shareholders, but you also have the government, you have other businesses, you have research collaborations and partnerships as well. So it's, it's like a multi ecosystem, <laughs> you know, yeah. of ideas and people that are, that are coming together. And mm. I know that you've been playing an amazing role in, in bringing these networks and partnerships together. How, how do you do that? Well, it's a phrase I use called the pals of Binabara, P-A-L-S, and I've called them partnerships, alliances and linkages from the day of the bushfire. Mm. And and I knew that the only way we were going to get the, the recovery process working effectively is to harness that. And fortunately, once again, on the day of the bushfire, in the morning, I got a phone call from um, the then Minister for State Development. He's now our Treasurer, Cameron Dick. And Cameron very kindly offered to set up an across-government task force, local, state and federal, but particularly state. And what that meant was for the next six months, every two weeks, we had senior officers from all the key government departments coming together to meet with us and help us through the very complex planning issues you have to deal with post-disaster, with roads and environment and electricity and public safety and hygiene, because when you've got planes dropping water on and water retardant on bushfires, that water gets into people's uh, water tanks because we everybody we don't have water supply. You have to have your own water yeah. tanks in our community. The local school has to have its water tanks emptied and cleaned up. So that's all a process that well, yeah, it's amazing the number of government agencies that are involved when you're doing a bushfire or a recovery from a mm. disaster. So that was fantastic uh, bit of cooperation there. Yeah, and, and that's probably fast-tracked our recovery about three years because if we didn't have it, you yeah. know, you, you, you're stumbling around government agencies and bureaucracies. The other good thing it did was bring in both the feds and the state because we focused in the first couple of days on looking after the 60-odd staff we had to retrench because, you know, they still had bills to pay and pay their kids stuff yeah. and mortgages. And so within 10, I'm very proud of this, what the team did. Within 10 days, 100% of the staff were retrenched, either had a new job or some arrangement with Stanlink or some new training. And that, that was great for them. And then we had to deal with the creditors because there was people who'd supplied stuff to Binabara and hadn't been paid. And we just lost the place and they wanted their yeah. money. And then we had customers. We had 4,000 forward bookings and 15 weddings. And we had people trying to ring us you know, in between media calls saying, can I get my money back? Um, and we've got no money. And so that's all very intense. And then <laughs> within a couple of days, the politicians start to arrive in the media crews. And we're talking from prime minister, federal ministers for emergency services, premiers, state government ministers and officials, the governor general flew in. And that's all wonderful. And you got to, And that's fantastic that they would come. And you've got to take advantage of that, but, you know, it causes disruption in yeah. the in the recovery plans that you have to get on and do. But you've got to prioritise that because those relationships, those PELs, are the ones that signed off on things like $35 million to rebuild the road from the bottom to the top where the cliff collapsed above and below. So yeah. the then Prime Minister of the day, uh, Scott Morrison, and the then Emergency Services Minister of the day, um, who's now the the um, leader of the federal uh, national party um, were very supportive. And as it turned out, just a week or so ago, with a change of government, the new minister for the emergency services came up 
and did the official opening of the infrastructure that was built from the grant that the previous, op- now the opposition guy, gave us a couple of years ago. But so it doesn't matter what side of politics they're on. I treated mm. them all equally and with respect. Yeah. And that that worked for us, federal, state and local. And that's been critical. We wouldn't, without that level of maturity and understanding and dealing with the government agencies, once again, we wouldn't be anywhere near our progress now, three years later, without mm. it. No, but it only happened. They, yeah. you know, And every one of them had a story. You know, the Governor-General, when his kids were little, he lived in Brisbane. He used to come bushwalking in Benabarra. The Prime Minister from Sydney came up as a 17-year-old with his mates for a camp. The Premier of Queensland used to come for school holidays. The Treasurer of Queensland had his Christmas holidays at Benabarra. And everybody's got a Benabarra story. And so that's why when it burnt down and we hit the media big time, that they, it all resonated with them and they wanted to support us. It was just, just brilliant. Mm, and that's a beautiful example. Yeah, kind of bringing, bringing those partnerships together and also being ready, um, yeah, being kind of ready in the moment. I know that we have, I mean, we have businesses all across Australia, starting with bushfires, but also with, you know, with the, with the recent floods. And, there, you know, there's a lot of talk about um, business resilience and how can we, you know, how can we work through those really challenging times? And I'm, I'm just curious, and this doesn't have to be, like, very dark, but, <laughs> uh, but have there been, like, I mean, obviously, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of emotion, a lot of, uh, lot of stuff was happening very quickly um, in the aftermath you know, were there kind of dark days where you thought that, well, this is not going to work or this is not going to, we're not going to maybe achieve that or something that seems just really, yeah, it's just, just really hard. Um, how did you get through those moments? I never had any of them. It was nice. always positive. <laughs> mm. we, were, we were always going to harness all that emotional energy from so many people. When you've got thousands of people sending you messages. I think in, on our Facebook site within two days, we had like 400,000 hits. I mean, it's just ridiculous amount of volume. And, um, and when you see that enormous passion, even, even the journalists I was talking to on the radio and on the TV interviews, they were crying, you know. Um, and it's very hard when you've got a raw emotion and, you've got, mm. and you're trying to hang in there and the person interviewing you was in tears. <laughs> that was a bit tricky on a few occasions. Yeah. Um, but no, I was always positive. I always knew mm. that there was such a strong emotional connection to the place that a very unique opportunity to, um, once again, to identify that and harness it and use it and send mm. them a message, a positive message that, yeah, we'll get this place back on its feet. Now, at that time, the main roads people had said, maybe it'll take three or four months to fix the road. And so we had a little bit of money left to pay, a, you know, keep half a dozen staff to maintain stuff yeah. and, and look after all the cancellations and so forth. But after three or four months, they said, no, it'll take another month and then another month and then another month and the money, zero money. Mm. And a year later, 12 months, we finally got the road open. So I had to go and ask a lot of people to lend money and have faith that we're going to get the business back yeah. on its feet. And we were very fortunate that some very kind people gave us loans because uh, they had faith in what we were doing. Mm. And that enables us to reopen. Because, you know, when you reopen, you need 30 staff 
and you got to you can't just bring them on the day open. You got to bring no. them on weeks before, so you got to have money to pay their wages. And you yeah. got to find that money from somewhere. So we were very fortunate that enough people bought into the vision mm. and took the risk and lent us money to get the place reopened. Yeah, I remember when when the fires came. You know, there was also a discussion, and obviously in the media about climate change and whether. Um, you know, we have been seeing more drier periods um, that can get more or have more bushfires as well. What would you say, what do businesses well, like Binabar or other businesses need to think about if we consider, for instance, the, the changing climate? Well, the, there's a need to recognise the realities of climate change and how, in our case, it impacts on subtropical forest mm. that's our location um, and how you design build and operate tourism infrastructure in that sort of natural subtropical environment that's getting pressured a bit more with with the imp- the things that climate change exacerbates and that's perhaps longer dry seasons it's definitely we're seeing the last couple of years you know, even I had the bushfire three years ago in a big dry period before that, the last 12 months, it just hasn't stopped raining. Yeah. And we've been very fierce storms. And we've actually had our major access road at the southern end of it or the northern end of it um, collapse. And for six months, we've lost our single access road this year, our main road in. We had one back road in to the lodge. So this year, the business has been impacted by that. And of course, since we reopened two years ago, after a year of closure from the bushfire, like everybody, we've had to deal with COVID. And so when you have a COVID shutdown, which we did in August last year, you know, that cost us uh, an emerging business out of a crisis, $80,000 lost that week. Now, if we'd had lockdowns like Sydney and Melbourne had for two or three months, we would have had to close the business up. Um, Then this year, with the rain, and I think it was February, we had to shut the business again for, for a number of days because the floods in Brisbane and Northern Rivers, our staff and suppliers couldn't get to us and customers and it was dangerous for the staff. Mm. So Bitterborough has actually been shut down three <laughs> times in it, since it started in 1933 and those three times have been on my watch in the last three years. So I got short straw on shutdown. I'm pretty good at <laughs> getting pretty good at managing shutdowns and cash flow crisis um, and, you know, it just doesn't stop. So, mm. so. That's still still a way you got to run a business these days. You know, you got to <laughs> constantly. There's mm. always something going on that's out of your control. So, it's a matter. So how do you, how do you manage that? Because I think a lot of you know, because we have been used as kind of bis- kind of business as usual, and yes, then we have the changing climatic trends. We've had the COVID. We've and and obviously Binabara has those kind of you know other natural hazards as well. Mm. So, what's your advice for whether similar businesses or businesses impacted by these kinds of events? Um, there's things you can control and things you can't control. So you can't control the weather. This yeah. is the immediate stuff. There's the big picture, and we can all do something better in terms of climate change. But on the day-to-day business operations, you've got to you've got to be aware that there's going to be things that you can't control that go along that will happen. And then there's things you can control. And so identifying those things you can control and making sure that you've got good control and, and are flexible and agile to use them. So um, this is the point about being able to identify and manage those things that you can control. Um, and that might be multi-skilling tasks, uh, staff. 
sadly, it probably means having more casual part-time staff than full-time staff. So you can, when you do have a crisis, you can release the cost of staffing. Um, that's a reality of the business, yeah. things you have to do. Um, what you do in terms of your uh, mitigation activities on site with access to water, um, access to hazard reduction burnings and working in partnership with the National Parks to do that, preparing the site for things like that. Um, uh, you know, and having, a, well, you, you've got a, under law now, you've got to have a bushfire, a bushfire management strategy anyway, or plan. So you work through those issues as part of yeah. your risk man, overall risk management activities. Yeah, I think another thing is just empowering you, your key people, whether they be staff or decision or volunteers, is is getting people involved and giving them the authority to do things. So you don't have one leader, you have a collective leadership. And, you know, my job really is just to keep all the the, uh, the cats inside the tent and not have, them, have too many of them outside running. You know, and three years later, we've still got everybody inside the tent because they still now we've got the money to rebuild a lodge. Mm. Everybody's focused on the new lodge. We'll have a few skirmishes about, you know, what it looks like and should that room be there and should the stairs be there and what colour this is. But in the big picture of things, they're, they're, not, they're, they're not anywhere near as major as the fact that we've got $80 million to rebuild a lodge. That's the big, that's the big picture. Um, but, you know, you've got to let people have their opportunity for engagement because there's no dominant shareholder at Binnaburra. There's, you know, we... Um, we're not all equal because if you've got 500 shares or 50,000 shares, there's a difference when it comes to voting power. But um, but everybody is always given the opportunity to have their say and mm. be listened to respectfully. Um, and, you know, you pick up a lot of good ideas. You pick up things that you missed or they're, they're, you have a professional group. We have a lodge design committee and they're very, very good. Um, but we get input from various shareholders and, and other customers and you think, oh, we didn't think of that idea. That's a great idea. Let's let's advance that. So we're constantly encouraging, receiving and engaging with everybody and respecting their ideas. And so, you know, we've got a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to lay the foundations for the next 100 years of a lodge at Vinnaburra. When, you know, when the bushfires hit, I said, you know, these Gondwana rainforests have been around for hundreds of millions of years. And if we look at 178 years of... Um, 172 years of Binnaburra's history, the first 86 years we started and had a bushfire. And now we're at the halfway point of that and there's mm. another 86 years ahead of us. And, you know, we owe it to our generation and future generations to do something that uses contemporary knowledge and systems and, and building materials to build something even better to create a new spirit of Binnaburra for many generations to come. Mm, and that's, yeah, and that's a beautiful, beautiful explanation on collective in intelligence and what you can get from, you know, opening up the um, opportunities for people to actually have their voice, voice heard. And that's obviously very, <laughs> very much in the, in the, in the spirit of Binnaburra. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Steve, for for um, for sharing sharing your insights, and for thanks for anyone listening to this podcast. So, I am Dr. Johanna Lau at Griffith University, and I am very very excited to see what you learn uh, from Steve's insights. Thank thanks, Joanna.
The Worker Learner Podcast was brought to you by the Professional Learning Hub, Griffith University's platform for executive and professional education.